This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, The Monthly's contributing editor Rachel Withers joined me to talk about the sexual assault and rape allegations in federal politics, as well as the latest with the News Media Bargaining Code, including Facebook banning news pages and news links from Australia. Then, acclaimed historian Henry Reynolds joined me on the show. Henry brings us some serious truth-telling with his book of the same name, Truth-Telling, History, Sovereignty and the Uluru Statement. He takes us through the historical reality of the British colonisation of Australia and why it is legally, historically and morally clear that Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded. And finally, Pacific Affairs correspondent for Inside Story, Nick McClellan joined me to update us on the latest on politics in the Pacific. We discuss the issues at the Pacific Islands Forum, including the Micronesian states who have decided to walk away from the forum. We also talk about the first pro-independent government in New Caledonia since 1999. I can't wait to welcome onto this show a new guest, uh, Rachel Withers. She's the contributing editor at The Monthly which is a monthly magazine, which you can find in, you know, the places you buy hard copy things. You can also buy it digitally if that's your thing as well. And Rachel is joining me to talk federal politics. And we're going to be looking at a couple of key issues. One issue that we're going to look at is the sexual assault and rape allegations that have been made. Um, One key allegation, the first allegation um, by Brittany Higgins was said to have occurred at Parliament House. And since Brittany came forward and uh, spoke with news.com.au, Samantha Maiden, and also Channel 10's The Project, we also have seen three other women come forward with um, other complaints and allegations in relation to the same man. Uh, This isn't the first time we've seen sexual assault allegations around politics, particularly by political staffers. So, Uh, It's not a single or solitary case. Um, This is something which seems to be really widely cultural. Um, And so we're going to talk all about that. And then, of course, uh, the Facebook news uh, ban, I guess you could call it, because you can't really uh, see news sites in your Facebook feed anymore, those news pages that you may have been following. And you also can't share the links to those news sites with your friends because it will just say something like error cannot post. Um, And and there's a dog in the background too. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to talk about that and the news media bargaining code, uh, which is the reason why you now don't have news on Facebook. So I welcome Rachel with us now. Thanks so much for joining me, Rachel. Thank you for having me, Amy. And I'm sorry about my dog in the background there. That's all right. What's your dog's name? Maggie and she's a rescue dog she's brand new so she still does a lot of barking all right well hello to Maggie um so we're going to talk about first of all the sexual assault and rape allegations um and in particular the first allegation that we saw made by Brittany Higgins who was a liberal staffer and she was a staffer to the defense minister Linda Reynolds um and we're talking about an allegation that was in 2019 in terms of uh, when this alleged incident occurred. Um, obviously, it sent shockwaves through the community because uh, we were surprised and, and obviously, I guess, astonished to think that 
um, an alleged rape could take place in Australia's Parliament House in Canberra, which is supposed to be a highly secure building, and it usually is. Um, so first, let's chat about that and how this story has progressed. Um, and first of all, you know, with the Brittany Higgins allegation, for those who weren't aware, um, you know, how did this all come about and what was the initial response from the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and his government? Yeah, well, when this first came out last Monday morning on news.com.au, it looked like it was going to be a big story, but I don't think anyone realised quite how big of a story it was going to be. Um, it, they're particularly shocking allegations because um, Higgins alleges that um, she was raped in Linda Reynolds' office uh, inside Parliament House after a, a night of drinking. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't, I think, until Monday evening um, when she went on the project and she was interviewed by Lisa Wilkinson that it became apparent just how big of a story this was going to be. So the, the government came out you know, saying a few things on Monday, but by Tuesday um, they had to come out and announce, um, you know, they were going to take some bigger action. So Scott Morrison came out on Tuesday. He apologised to Higgins um, and he also announced two inquiries uh, into the parliament sort of processes and workplace culture. Um, and he also employed um, that, you know, that line... Uh, as a father of two daughters, um, that I think really, really took this up a notch in terms of the anger. You know, uh, it was, we've seen it from politicians time and time again, but, you know, it was clear that he could only, you know, relate to this through women in his own life. It sort of really highlighted this lack of care for for women in the workplace that, that brought us to this point. Um, but then I guess the story has just kept... <laughs> escalating for the government, um, partly because there's, you know, some dispute over who knew what when. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's become on uh, Wednesday there were disagreements about the fact that Higgins said that Morrison's principal private secretary had contacted her in 2020 when there was a, a Four Corners episode about workplace harassment coming out. Uh, Morrison said that didn't happen. There's no evidence of that happening. And so she's she's responded, you know, she's not happy with the response and she's actually suggested that there's been some victim blaming going on. Um, there's some rumours that the um, government has been backgrounding on Higgins and her partner, who's a... a um, public servant in Canberra, suggesting that there are some ulterior motives going on. Um, and, yeah, the, the government has just been sort of on the back foot pretty much from Tuesday last week, having to announce more and more inquiries, uh, more and more investigations into who knew what when, um, all while they continue to insist that the Prime Minister didn't know, which has become kind of crucial for them here. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's rolled on into this week and it's certainly not going away for the government. Mm. Well, I've got to say that um, I was try struggling to find people who weren't uh, annoyed or angered by Scott Morrison's words, particularly on the Tuesday that you mentioned there when he was saying that he spoke to his, his wife, Jenny, uh, and she you know, reminded him that you've got to think about, you know, if this had happened to you, your two daughters, how you would feel about that. Um, and that certainly sparked in me the thought of, number one, the, 
the Prime Minister had an entire day, 24 hours around, to actually come up with a reflective, thoughtful, considered response, um, and that's what he came up with. And number two, that the Prime Minister, um, you know, needed reminding that his daughters were women and Brittany Higgins was a woman who could have been his daughter and therefore he can somehow relate to Brittany Higgins on a human level rather than a political level uh, to say that, you know, the rape of a human being and in this case a young woman is wrong. So, I mean, it it wasn't just, you know, a kind of insensitive comment, I thought, but also it seemed to be quite revealing of the way that the government perceives this issue and it also... Uh, supports Brittany Higgins's view that she has felt all along, and this is what she said, I'm paraphrasing, that she has felt like this has been seen as a political problem because this incident occurred before the 2019 election. Um, and so she's felt like she's been managed as a political problem and not provided the support that she needed and has not really been treated like a human being who has been um, obviously allegedly raped uh, by a, a colleague in Australia's Parliament House, as you said, in Linda Reynolds' office on her couch. Um, and there's been obviously subsequent things that Brittany herself has found out about the fact that um, the room was steam cleaned the day after, uh, that there was still the CCTV vision there, but she hasn't been given access to it, though she's asked for it. Uh, there's been so many things that it seems like Brittany Higgins has had to learn of through this process of making things public. And that said, although I know that so many people listening um, will be supportive of Brittany Higgins and any woman who comes forward, it is a really uh, tough and confronting and terrible situation to have to lay out your, you know, private and dark times and, you know, experiences to the whole of Australia and the world. Um, and not everyone in Australia has been supportive and we've seen that online. So how, how does that, what does that reveal about, you know, women and politics in general? Obviously this is a political specific situation and political staffers have even more reason potentially not to share this with the world because it does have massive political consequences, but it also does have consequences just for women in general. So could you share with us, for those of us who aren't aware of the role of the political staffer or, you know, how tenuous their job can be um, and why Brittany Higgins may have been even more reluctant to have to come out and share this with the public? Yeah, well, I mean, we've seen we've seen women come forward over the years, um, obviously, it wouldn't represent the the large number of women that uh, that these things happen to. But um, it is particularly difficult for women who work in the political space to come forward with these allegations. Um, we've seen a few over the past few years. Um, there were two women who came forward in um, 2019 with allegations, um, and they said sort of the same thing that it, you know, they felt like. Um, they were just supposed to keep it to themselves. They were told that their careers would be put in jeopardy if they came forward um, and that they should just sort of quietly, quietly deal with it. Um, and it seems like one of the only ways to, to ultimately get some attention for these issues is to come forward so publicly like 
a number of these women have now done. Um, and it's a very, very brave thing to do. But as you mentioned, it's it's a horrible thing to have to go through in the public eye. What what Higgins has, has been going through over the past week, you know, learning details of her assault that she couldn't get out of her employers, um, you know, and then having people disagree with things she said, you know, calls she said she received from people in Morrison's inner circle, um, and to have to have this tussle through the media, um, it's it's horrible and unnecessary, and it's it's very brave of her. Um, but I think one thing um, also that has been particularly frustrating about this is that we are having this this dispute about who knew what when and journalists are digging through um, which uh, staffers in the Prime Minister's office knew. And, we're, you know, I think we're, we've sort of lost sight of the focus of the problem. Um, and I think we're starting to get back to it now, but we've had this big distraction along the way of, um, you know, what the Prime Minister knew and when. And that's very important. Like, it's important if he's lied and, and sort of claimed ignorance when he knew all along. But, you know, if we could have just not wasted our time on all of that and been having the conversation we needed to be having, um, that just would have... It would have been a lot less pain for, for Higgins, I'm sure, and for everyone involved. Mm. It seems that there needs to be uh, an independent arms-length inquiry to look at all the different people who had knowledge or should have had knowledge um, in the sense of security guards, parliamentary staff, uh, ministers, other staffers, the Prime Minister's office, um, so that then we don't have to see this kind of gradually piecemeal come out through the media and create more trauma and more um, confusion, as you say, and detract from the main issue, which is violence against women, certainly, and also workplace harassment, and in this case, an alleged sexual assault and rape. Um, so, yeah, it, it's interesting because Scott Morrison like many politicians, and we referenced this earlier, came out with numerous inquiries, all to be headed by various people. Uh, one inquiry into Liberal Party culture by uh, a woman MP in the Liberal Party who's not known to be um, an avowed feminist. Then we've also seen the, there'll be an inquiry at the PM's office uh, by the head of the PM's office, Phil Gachins, to see um, who knew, and obviously that will be conducted by someone who's within that office. Uh, and then we've also got Simon Birmingham running another um, inquiry. He himself has been caught up in some allegations, um, at least of his own staff having had an, a similar allegation being made and him being aware of this, but seemingly may have also conducted himself in a similar way to other ministers um, and seeing this as a political issue. And then we've also got a proposed independent review. We don't know who'll be leading that yet. Uh, and obviously some people have bandied around names like Kate Jenkins, who's the current Federal Sex Discrimination Commissioner, and Elizabeth Broderick, who is her predecessor. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting that we now have all these inquiries that are going to happen, some of which may not even be revealed in terms of the findings, because Scott Morrison yesterday suggested he that they wouldn't all be shared with the public, uh, which brings up more issues around transparency. What are your thoughts on the government's strategy to announce multiple inquiries, uh, three of which don't appear to be at arm's length from the government? 
Yeah, it's starting to feel quite ridiculous that there are four separate inquiries, I think, now going on. Um, but the thing about it is, is that people in the government knew about the Higgins allegations long before now. Many of them have known since 2019. Um, it seems certainly others knew in 2020 uh, when Higgins got some calls. But, yeah, they've known about this one for a while. We've all known about the last two allegations uh, that came out in, um, I think it was in in the Nine Media in 2019, um, and, and we've known about things before this. And there was no, you know, need for, there was, there, it, people didn't think there was the need for, um, you know, a major inquiry into workplace culture before now. Like, it, it really speaks to what, Higgins has managed to inspire here that she's she's now got four inquiries um and it you know whether they're going to be effective or not remains to be seen but she's she's triggered four inquiries now but the government knew all of these things before Higgins came forward with her story on Monday and it chose to do nothing um and I think that's why it's so important for them they pretend that Scott Morrison was in the dark because you know he's being the man of action now. He wants to be seen as someone who's responding to this, who cares about this, who sees this as a serious issue, uh, even if his wife had to tell him to. Um, and so, yeah, it, it just, it seems ridiculous that we've got four inquiries now when this incident happened in 2019. Mm. Do you think it's a way for them to say, well, I can't comment on this matter anymore because it's the subject of an inquiry? Is that some kind of political, you know, out Look, it certainly has helped Scott Morrison in question time when he's been continued, they've continued to question him on some of the holes in his timeline and he's been able to say, oh, that's that's a part of this inquiry or that's a part of that inquiry. Um, and certainly also it seems that um, the yeah. government and, and Linda Reynolds in particular are also able to hide behind, you know, the fact that there's now a police investigation going on Um because Higgins has reopened, has gone to the police and asked them to reopen the investigation. So certainly they claim they're able, they claim sort of they need to to stay mum on certain elements of it now. But like as Higgins has come out and said, and she's she's really been quite vocal, you know, her privacy wasn't protected when this piece of information was was given to particular other members of the government for damage control. Um, and so yeah, it it seems now that they're using. Um, her privacy and the integrity of certain inquiries as a defence mechanism, but none of that seemed to matter before. Mm. And um, we are seeing a lot of chatter and discussion on Twitter from a number of female journalists who are in touch with particularly Liberal MPs, women MPs, um, and also Liberal women staffers. And a number of those have said that they also... Um, you know, have experienced harassment in the workplace, sexual assault, um, but they're too scared to come forward to say anything because of their jobs, um, the fact that, you know, they'll be tarnished with a claim if someone ever, you know, wants to employ them in the future. Um, there is a lot of, you know, stigma and shame around this for a number of women who are afraid and there are absolutely repercussions for this, as we've already mentioned. What are your thoughts overall in terms of Australia's parliament and particularly at the federal level where so many MPs and staffers are away from home, they're all in Canberra, we've heard about 
the so-called Canberra bubble for so long about, um, you know, drinking, late nights out, um, and the fact that so many people are, you know, have their lives, their private lives um, separated, I guess, by that distance, and that's MPs as well as all the staff. Not everyone is based up in Canberra. Um, does this lead to an unhealthy workplace culture that it, obviously that can't be the only reason and it's really about human behaviour and the choice to do the wrong thing, but what about the overall political culture in Canberra? Is there, you know, something particularly unique or wrong or toxic about Canberra um, that sets it apart or is this something that all workplaces experience like Scott Morrison has intimated? Look, I think it's a couple of things. It's it's what you've mentioned about that Canberra bubble and people being um, away from their families and, and sort of spending this week, you know, drinking with their colleagues and staying with their colleagues in many cases. And um, But it, I think it's also, and we're, we're seeing some discussion of this, Parliament is also just a toxically masculine environment. It's, it's an environment where male power is sort of imbued in the very walls. Um, it's a place where men feel um, entitled to act with impunity and clearly this um, alleged perpetrator felt that way. Um, you know, he, he's now been accused of of um, assaulting or harassing four different women. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a toxically masculine environment um, and... There hasn't been consequences, it seems, for for many of these men. You know, even when things have been reported, um, you know, he was sacked but went on to a career in in another sort of uh, politics adjacent field. Um, so it is just, yeah, it seems like it's it's part of the culture, and it's going to be a big thing to shift that. Um, but, you know, I think we're having the right conversations now and, and Higgins has really inspired something quite powerful. We'll, we'll see, you know, what difference it actually makes, but at least we're having the conversations again. Like it, this problem was here last week and last year, um, but today we're talking about it. Mm, that's an excellent point. And uh, obviously it would be great to see more Liberal women in Parliament um, at similar levels that the Labor Party currently has because it's no doubt that when you have more women in positions of power, culture does shift. It may not change everything, but it certainly does shift some of the power to, you know, another direction and out from the main dominant power. But that's one thing that can help change, but it's certainly not going to be the only thing that will help to change a toxic and very much uh, masculine culture that's built on patriarchal power. So uh, watch this space, I guess, is um, the case and to see if there are any other allegations that come to light um, around Parliament House and federal politics. And as you say, this is a, a an issue that's not new and has been around and certainly these women have had to carry this uh, pain around with them for a very long time. So um, it's great to have that conversation. Uh, now shifting on to a completely different topic, but it is very much similarly prominent um, and has taken up a lot of airtime um, and discussion over the past week. Uh, we did wake up 
I can't even remember what day it was now. It's Thursday it morning. When, there Thursday you go, morning. Thursday yeah. morning. It feels longer. Um, not that I really like Facebook that much, but um, it was kind of shocking to wake up and see and check the, the news pages and see that, you know, your uh, own publication, The Monthly, has had their Facebook turned off. Um, we've had Triple R that I've mentioned has had theirs turned off. We've had obviously the, the main players like The Guardian, um, The Age, and also News Corp uh, having their pages affected as well. And not just their pages, but you can't actually post a link in your feed uh, to share news with other people. So, and not only did we see those news outlets affected, we did see, uh, you know, <laughs> people you wouldn't think were news outlets and, and organisations like the Bureau of Meteorology, like the Doherty Institute, the Burnett Institute, uh, a number of emergency services organisations, those were remedied uh, about, I think it was that night, some of them had already had their pages put back up online. But this is something which um, Facebook had warned about. They'd warned that they'd be taking action because they didn't agree with the news media bargaining code that was expecting them to enter into agreements with news outlets to pay for content that they were sharing on their platforms or using on their platforms. First of all, um, let's talk about what this news media bargaining code is and why Facebook and also Google uh, and others had been so reticent to engage in this process and to engage and enter into an agreement. Yeah, well, so the, the news media bargaining code um, is something that the government's been you know, working on for quite a while. Um, and it, it's become, it's turned into this compulsory code under which um, these like designated platforms, which basically means Facebook and Google, have to pay publishers for displaying their links to their news um, articles. And it's sort of, it, it's something where the, the, Publishers and platforms are encouraged to negotiate uh, and strike a deal, but if they can't strike a deal, you know, the the decision of what is fair payment goes out of their hands to a, an independent arbitrator. And so that was what really, I think, got um, Facebook and Google on the defensive because, you know, they just couldn't know what this code was going to cost them. Um, so they both have made big threats over the past um six months or so, Facebook said that it would take news away. Uh, it, it announced this last September. Uh, it said it would take news away if the code went through in its current form. And it, it hadn't actually changed its position, you know, noticeably since then. Um, Google threatened to um, take away the search engine entirely. Um, and, you know, that was, that was last month. And I think that got people even more panicked and we started talking about what we would do without Google. Um, but over the last few weeks, Google has started striking deals with different publishers. Um, you know, it's, it, it signed deals with a bunch of small publications first, and then it started um, doing the big deals with, I think seven came first. Um, uh, it now has one with News Corp with nine. Um, and so it sort of, you know, came to its own agreements that would, that would, mean that an independent arbitrator wasn't going to be able to tell it what to do. Um, but Facebook never actually backed down on its, on its threats. Um, 
the treasurer kept insisting that he had this under control, that, that everything, you know, that an agreement was going to be reached. Um, and he was talking to the CEOs of Facebook and Google regularly. Um, but then it's not clear if he, you know, took his eye off the ball or just didn't care. But um, the parliament passed, or the lower house passed the code on Wednesday night and by Thursday morning news was gone from Facebook. Um, so they did exactly what they said they were going to do uh, and we were all shocked and, and many politicians were outraged. But, um, you know, we had plenty of warning that this was coming. I guess no one expected it to actually happen and especially no one expected it to be so severe. Um, you know, the fact that a number of other pages were taken down in in the sort of purging of Facebook pages, um, a, a bunch of charities, uh, non-profits, social services, um, even the AFLW was taken down, but the AFL wasn't. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think obviously this was a, a very like disturbing and chilling thing to have happen overnight, but people were, you know, especially upset that they took it so far and especially the health and emergency pages during, you know, a pandemic and sort of the end, the tail end of a bushfire season. Um, as you mentioned, a lot of those have now been restored. And so we're left now with, I guess, a bit more what we expected the threat to look like, which is just no news. Um, yeah. yeah. And the, the government says it's still negotiating with Facebook and is, is working on this, but they, they do insist they're not going to back down. So, you know, it's not clear what's going to happen. Um, I, my prediction is probably that the government will back down somehow without admitting that they back down and there will be amendments made to the code. Um, but you know, who knows, maybe we might just all find we enjoy Facebook without news. Um, it's concerning obviously as people working in the media, um, this is going to hurt publishers when it was supposed to be helping them. Um, but you know, um, I'm personally enjoying my news-free newsfeed. Mm. Well, it certainly means you're not really checking it as often. And I'm over on Twitter far more for news than I ever was on Facebook, but it shows just how much better, I guess, Twitter is as an aggregator and collator of news and information. Um, one of the interesting parts about this is the fact that People like former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd have been giving evidence, in fact, uh, for a Senate inquiry into media diversity. And Kevin Rudd has not been quiet on this issue and on the, the issue of the Murdoch media and their dominance in Australia, particularly the fact that overall 70% of the publications are owned by Murdoch. But then in his home state of Queensland, 100% of, every, of the publications there are owned by Murdoch and the fact that when they bought these regional newspapers uh, in 2020, they uh, sold them off or got rid of them. Um, they, you know, closed them down essentially um, and, you know, that obviously has meant to lead to far less media diversity and also, um, you know, so many country towns and regional areas do rely on local newspapers and news sites for their information, which is now solely online if it exists at all. 
Um, so, you know, this is an issue that is caught up in that. And we've heard Kevin Rudd come out to say, well, actually, this news media bargaining code is really flawed and we shouldn't have even had it in the first place. It was really just set up to benefit Rupert Murdoch and News Corporation. This is Kevin Rudd's contention. Uh, and that we really should be looking at something else um, to to address the so-called problem of um, lagging or... Um, poorly funded or lacking in funding public interest journalism. And one way to do that, uh, a number of people have suggested, is through the tax and transfer system. Why don't we just tax these companies through that system um, and then pass those the tax on to and divvy it out across uh, media organisations? What are your thoughts on these kind of comments and um, critiques that people like Kevin Rudd have been making about the code overall? Yeah, I think, I mean, Kevin Rudd was out there saying, even before this happened, that the code was just meant to benefit, you know, the big dogs in the media. Um, and he was really one of the most outspoken people against the code. Um, both sides of politics were behind it. Um, and so Rudd, along with a bunch of smaller publications, have, have been saying this all along. But I think now that we've seen the consequences of, of this particular approach, um, more people are thinking about other ways this could have or should have been done. Um, you know, if you say to Facebook, we're going to ban you from sharing links unless you pay for them, they're well within their rights to say, OK, we won't share them. Um, so I think, yeah, hopefully now we're going to, consider some some other ways to do this you know these these corporations really don't pay a lot of tax so that might have been the first place to start um but yeah i think i think this conversation will continue um the government insists that the news media bargaining code is the way to go um but you know it hasn't passed the senate yet so we'll see what happens when it reaches the senate and it starts to be debated well, we've got um, obviously more to play and more to run on this issue as well. And, uh, yeah, it will be interesting to see how long Facebook holds out and uh, maybe based on Mark Zuckerberg's kind of behaviour in the past, he might just keep holding out until the government changes their minds. And as you said, some people are enjoying a break from Facebook and the news. Some people have even quit Facebook in response to it because uh, they see it as really an unreasonable action and uh, it would be better to negotiate um, instead of holding some the Australian government to ransom. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens and, uh, yeah, keep an eye on things. And also um, people can catch up with you, can't they, Rachel, uh, through your daily work at The Monthly? Yeah, uh, so if, if you go to uh, the monthly and, and click on the Today tab, you'll find a place to sign up for the, the newsletter, which comes out every day at 4pm. Excellent. Well, hopefully people can do that because they won't be getting it through Facebook. And, uh, no. <laughs> and thanks so much for joining us, Rachel. It's been a real delight to chat with you and to Maggie in the background. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. Sorry no worries. <laughs> This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. And it's wonderful to be speaking with my next guest. 
Historian Henry Reynolds is uh, well known for his work on settler and colonisation history and particularly the frontier wars in Australia. And uh, he is an honorary research professor in Aboriginal studies, global cultures and languages at the University of Tasmania. He's also written numerous books, uh, some of which you would be particularly familiar with. Um, One from 1981 that was uh, particularly significant for historical I guess, scholarly research is the other side of the frontier. Uh, More recently, there's been um, the Forgotten War, which you may be familiar with. And uh, there are so many others that I won't read out, but I hope that you can go back through and look through um, Henry's work. We're going to be talking about Henry's new book today. It is called Truth-Telling, History, Sovereignty and the Uluru Statement. It's been published by New South Publishing. And uh, I welcome Henry now, who I believe is based over in Tasmania. Hi there, Henry. Oh, hi. Yes, I'm in Tasmania. I'm in a, in a little town called Richmond outside Hobart in a very, very old uh, building that used to be a roadside inn. Oh, wow, that's really fascinating. Um, how has uh, your experience been over in Tasmania, um, you know, during this coronavirus pandemic? Has it been a little bit different, presumably, to those on the mainland? Well, well yes. I mean, Western Australia had the Nullarbor and we had Bass Strait. Yeah. So uh, a- apart from a-, a bad outbreak when people came off the cruise ship at the very start, uh, it's been, we've had no local infections at all. So we've had a very uh, easy time compared, obviously, to people particularly in, in, the, in the, main, or the eastern mainland states, you know, Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. Mm. Yes, well, it certainly has been, a, you know, a very varied experience and uh, I know that from my experience I've been broadcasting, uh, you know, everywhere um, in this last year and uh, sometimes being in Melbourne, sometimes not. So it's been, you know, tough through those two lockdowns, but it's great to see that at least some of Australia's had some sense of normalcy through this pandemic. Um, Henry, before we jump into the content of your book, I did want to set the scene for people to get an understanding of your background as a historian and how you came to the area that you're now so well known for um, in, in scholarship, but also very much publicly because your books uh, are very much consumed by a general audience just as much as they are consumed by academia, um, including historians. So um, I'd love to hear the backstory to that because it does provide provide um, some insight into this book as well, particularly your connection to Eddie Marbo. Yeah. Well, it all really began when I was offered a job. Margaret and I, we'd grown up in Tasmania and gone to university and done some teaching and uh, we we went away uh, to England as young people did in those days. And while there, just, you know, we'd been there almost two years and I was offered a job in Townsville, uh, you know, which uh, uh, it was a very new little university college that I had never heard of. And I was offered this job uh, and, you know, accepted and, uh, you know, came back and went to Townsville and found the whole situation quite extraordinary 
I mean, there were lots of things about North Queensland which were very different from Hobart. But the most important thing was that it was a community where there was a significant population of both Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. And uh, not only was it, uh, was it you know, a, a revelation to be in what was quite clearly a multiracial society, uh, but to observe the relationship between white and black at that time in the 1960s, uh, this was a this was a aspect of Australia that I had knew nothing about, and much of it I found very shocking. Uh, I hadn't done much Australian history, but um, you know the world of you know the world of North Queensland of North Australia in those days. Uh, was so profoundly different and in a way very shocking. Uh, and constantly, every day or so, you would see or hear things uh, that built up this idea of a very different Australia. So that was uh, where where I started. And Margaret, who, of course, later went into politics from North Queensland, as a senator, uh, she was the the act. I mean, I was busy teaching. She was the activist. Got involved in local politics. Uh, set up a kindergarten for Aboriginal and Islander children. Uh, got involved with people like Bobby Sykes, who lived in Townsville. And uh, so I was drawn into the, the middle of this turbulent society. And uh, that was where we met Eddie Mabo because his uh, his children went to the kindergarten. So that was where it began. And um, as I say, I got involved in the uh, you know in activism in the day to day life of North Queensland before I began the historical research. And that was because I uh, you know I was given the job of teaching Australian history. Now, in the first year, I mean, I had two small classes and my students had all come from other parts of North Queensland. Uh, they knew that, you know, race was an ever-present issue uh, far better than I did. And uh, in my teaching, I suddenly realised that there was almost nothing about Aborigines or about frontier conflict in the textbooks that I was expected to use. In fact, the key textbook of the course, which was a University of Queensland course, literally it was a you know major history of Australia, multi-authored, the most widely used textbook of the period in both universities and senior high schools. There was nothing about Aborigines. They weren't even in the index. Now, this was astonishing. It was astonishing for me, but not astonishing clearly for most people in the rest of Australia. But uh, I thought, my goodness, I've you know, got to do something about this. How do I teach this aspect of Australia? And so I said, well, I'll have to go and do some research. Now, what I found was that there was almost nothing, particularly about Queensland. There were no books, really, of, of any consequence. So I had to start doing the research myself. And that was the beginning of a very long 
you know, crusade, really, to understand the truth about Australian history, the truth which I had been confronted with on a day-to-day basis. Mm. Well, it does um, remind me of an anecdote that you provided at the start of Forgotten War when you were mentioning your first ever postgraduate student, Noel Luz, who, uh, with yourself, were looking at the files from the Port Denison Times dating from the 1860s. And um, this was something that, you know, really struck me was a quote, what both of us found almost immediately was abundant evidence of frontier violence. It was not a case of seeking it out. The evidence spilled unbidden from the contemporary record like blood from an open wound. So I got the impression from that book and from that anecdote that the, this was evidence that was there to be uncovered um, and was easily uncovered uh, by someone who was curious enough and uh, willing enough to go out and do that research. Oh, yes. Once you start doing the research on well, the newspapers, you know, uh, obviously, and this was the first newspaper in North Queensland, the newspapers, but also the reminiscences of, of pioneers, uh, and then eventually the correspondence uh, into and out from government, uh, the uh, reports of, uh, you know, uh, letters to the newspapers. Uh, it was there in abundance. And it wasn't, it, it, I mean, the, the debate that took place in the public media in colonial society wasn't whether there was violence out there, it was whether it was justified, whether it was excessive, whether it was necessary, whether it was a inescapable, uh, you know, an inescapable fact, inescapable reality of colonial life. Uh, no one case, no one stood up and said, "Hey, this is all being made up." Everyone knew, everyone who who wanted to uh, read, and in a place of the small towns like, like Bowen was, I mean, it was a daily reality. They, they saw the native police riding out every day on their, on their expeditions. So that was, in some ways, that was the shocking thing, and also the, the frankness with which people discussed what was happening. Now... This led to a situation where we began uh, doing this work and I went, you know, in that first 10 years, I went all over Australia. Uh, I read government documents in every, you know, every archive. I went to all the major libraries right around the country. I read, you know, I read every frontier newspaper. That is a newspaper that was close to the conflict that was going on from uh, Thursday Island in the far north all the way around to uh, Onslow and those small towns on the Pilbara and uh, Kimberley coast. Um, I read hundreds of years of newspapers. And as I say, the, the, there was no doubt about the violence and also the fact that it was, it was, it, it was discussed. It did worry people. Uh, there were those who who were profoundly disturbed, who felt a great, uh, you know, a great anxiety about what was happening, about the corrupting uh, influence of this violence, and the casualness 
of the way the violence was talked about. So uh, when we started, and I mean by by uh, you know early 1970s, there were a small number of us in different parts of uh, Australia, including you know people in Brisbane who were beginning to uncover this and beginning to write. Uh, often theses and articles, but uh, eventually in sort of books that became uh, open to the public. And this, um, I mean, the, the, the extraordinary thing was that is the gap between the way in which violence was understood and worried about and talked about in 19th century Australia with what had happened by, you know, the middle of the 20th century in the 60s and 70s. We'd had two generations of people who had grown up being taught an Australian history which basically had left all of this story out. Now, when we suddenly turned up and said, hey, that's, you know, you've left out all this, all the blood, all the bloodshed, all the violence, uh, people were very disturbed. Understandably, I understood that. But here were these young, mainly young academics, ratbags, probably communists. You know, this was a time when communism was still the great bogey. Um, These people were were upsetting our view of our country. Uh, They are corrupting the youth. They are giving them ideas which will make them no longer proud of their own country. And that's why it became part of the culture wars. Uh, but as I say, I understand, because what we were... Uh, the thing to understand was that for at least two generations, Australians had been given a history that was remarkably uh, deficient in uh, talking about the actual truth of the colonial... You know, the a whole colonial project. Absolutely. Uh, It's very much true. And even, you know, moving into the 90s and the thousands, I know from my experience, even at high school, we were taught a very kind of sanitised version of Australian history. So it was only when I got to university and studied Australian history that I was confronted with, you know, things like um, the Mile Creek Massacre these you know major events that are just one example of the violence that occurred um, against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, you do say in that opening uh, chapter that, quote, I became a leading practitioner of what was to be given the pejorative title, the black armband history. Um, and this is something that anyone, you know, during the Howard years of Prime Minister would be very familiar with because we had the constant debate as to, you know, whether John Howard should be saying sorry. Kevin Rudd eventually was the Prime Minister to do that. Um, But really the culture wars were seemingly at a great height at that period um, of the Howard years and uh, certainly broke with the Hawke and Keating years um, in terms of the rhetoric and I guess, confronting our past in a more honest way. Um, I would love to get into now the content 
of this book. And before I do, I did want to read out the warning that's in the book because we are going to um, talk about and reference some material that might be distressing. So um, any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should be aware that um, this book and obviously then this interview will contain words and descriptions written by non-Indigenous people in the past that might be confronting and would be considered very inappropriate today and it also contains the names of deceased Indigenous people and uh, we won't get into graphic descriptions, I don't think, but I just wanted to let everyone know that that's what will happen. Um, Now, Henry, in this book, Truth Telling, you do publish the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full and you also quote it throughout this book as well and it has a very clear reasoning and it really is uh, what you explore in great depth and uh, with a fantastic analysis, which is around the foundations of sovereignty and Australia's or the British Empire's claim of sovereignty and then Australia as an independent or not, well, not entirely independent, a monarch, a monarchy. Um, But, you know, there is this contestation, this ongoing contestation over sovereignty that may not be um, as obvious or as direct or clear as the the vast majority of Australians um, are aware, you know, we often take for granted or just assume that, you know, it was legal at the time, that this time was a very backwards period where um, any major imperial powers can just go around to discover lands and take what they wanted. Now, that's a very overly simplistic view of the international law and understanding of law at the time, uh, which you do take us through. Um, But you also quote a great passage from the Uluru Statement of the Heart, which I will quote for our purposes. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. We're talking about... um, you know, the connection to the land and sovereignty. How could it be otherwise that peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? We believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. And then you go on to comment that we have here a series of assertions that have the rhetorical power of compacted common sense, but common sense is not the same thing as the common law. So in terms of that statement and the, I guess, very eloquent and concise and clear statement around sovereignty in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, what did you take from that and how did that lead you um, to this book and to the ideas in this book? Well, I mean, it it, it is uh, most eloquent and it 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 sort of flourish the, the the final flourish is you know poetic metaphorical, and in that sense people I think have not really given enough thought to it. Now the the question of a voice to parliament. There were three things. There was the voice to parliament, truth telling, and the question of sovereignty. Now uh, sovereignty is the one that is is hardest to come to terms with because it, there's been very little discussion in Australia about what it means. But uh, but if I can respond first to one of your comments. Now, the common view is that all of these things, that is what the British claimed, what the British did, the violence, that all of these things were common at the time. They were, they were acceptable way of behaving internationally 
and that uh, people like me and other historians and other commentators and activists who say, uh, you, you know, who, who are critical of this are what they call presentists. That is, we are applying our moral judgments and standards back to the past, uh, which is anachronistic. Now, what I wanted to do is indeed to come at it from the other side, that is, before the British arrived, what was the understanding and what were the international law? And there was a lot of international law written in the 18th century. So rather than going back from here, I wanted to come forward to the settlement of Australia uh, from the other, other side. And in that way, showing up that what the British did was quite extraordinary. Uh, that is, they claimed in the first instance, in 1788, uh, they claimed uh, half of the continent, as we know. And then the other claims in 1824 and 1829, the whole continent they claimed. Now, they made two claims. One, they claimed full sovereignty. That is, they were gaining not sovereignty by, by conquest or treaty, uh, it was an original sovereignty because there was no other sovereignty in, in existence. And they also claimed that all the land, all the real estate, became the property of the crown. Now, they were astonishing claims. Now, they could only make sense at the time if you accepted the, the view of the British officials in London in 1786, when the planning and the documents were being drawn up, people who had never been in Australia knew almost nothing about it. They decided that the Aboriginal people, the Indigenous people of the Australian continent, were either uh, not there, that is, that large parts of the continent were uninhabited, which is an assumption they, they did make. And on the other hand, they were also basically so primitive that they had not established uh, it right to the land, nor had they did they have any government or customary law. So they didn't exercise any sovereignty. Now, in a, in, now in a terrible way, that is the foundation of Australian law. That is, uh, the, 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 the Indigenous people over half the continent in, in, on the 7th of February 1788, when the proclamations were read, and that's the uh, you know the really the, the official beginning when the when the legal documents were were proclaimed, that over half a continent, the people lost their sovereignty over the country because uh, the British had uh, covered them, even though many of those people didn't even see white people for a hundred or even one hundred and fifty years. So it was an astonishing claim, uh, and as I point out, it, it had no justification in the law of the period, of the time. And uh, as, a, as a result, uh, that is still the fundamental building block of our law, and that's why I think it, it simply can't be sustained. Indeed. Well, there are so many examples internationally, uh, as you say, in the 18th century of, you know, these foundational texts and foundational understanding of international law and um, how one 
takes over a kind of area of land and you go into a number of steps and details around that. Um, I recall, you know, when I was reading through this book and you were talking about the fact that international law kind of made this clear that, you know, you couldn't just claim half of a continent if you weren't even occupying the whole half of the continent. Um, Mm. And that was just one example of something that I, you know, was unaware of. Yes, well, the, I mean, yeah, because uh, because the 19th century was a great age of European imperialism, and there were many competing imperial powers, as we know, uh, that they had to they had to work out uh, rules uh, in order that it wasn't just a free for all. And the first step was to uh, you certainly, you know, if if you could, you could claim to be the first Europeans to have visited and charted and if you like, discovered a part of the world. But that was merely, as, as Cook did, that was merely a claim outward to the other Europeans saying, this is our sphere of influence. And we may well uh, follow this up by actual occupation. But it was the actual occupation that mattered. I mean, Tasman had claimed Tasmania in 1642, but because the Dutch never followed up, uh, that simply fell into disuse. Uh, so, but if, if the British had decided, behaved in the normal way, and remember, the British had been uh, colonising all over the world, but particularly in North America, uh, for 150 years when they got to Australia. Now, in North America, firstly, they always recognised that the Indians were the landowners, and secondly, they accepted that the Indians the North American Indians had a form of sovereignty, internal sovereignty. They had their right to continue their government and their customs. And that if you you wanted to establish a settlement, uh, you negotiated with the local people uh, for for a place on the coast where you put your settlement. And your claim could only then extend as far as the rivers that ran into the coast at that point. In other words, uh, you could set up pinpoints of settlement, but that didn't give you a claim over vast areas of country you'd never seen and knew nothing about. And that's why the, the, you know, the claim of the British to Australia was so extraordinary, both in the law as it was and as, as in a way, practice became after it was realised the disasters that had happened in Australia. And so when the uh, British decided to annex New Zealand in 1840, and remember, Cook had been in New Zealand and sailed a hole around New Zealand and made a claim on New Zealand before, you know, in 1769, but it took the British 70 years before they annexed New Zealand. But they came with a treaty which recognised that the Maori, that there had to be negotiation about sovereignty uh, and there had to be a recognition of the Maori right to property and their right to self-government. Uh, that, that is, the, the British practice got back onto legitimate, uh, what for the Europeans were legitimate grounds in 1840 with New Zealand. Absolutely. Well, it's a great comparison to make in terms of the fact that, you know, treaty was very much a real 
um, consideration and something that was actually enacted and negotiated in New Zealand. And that often comes up as uh, a question as to why Australia didn't engage in that. And I agree. And having read this book now, it is absolutely astonishing because um, based on the law that you share and also uh, previous court cases and then latter court cases, it's clear that uh, the foundations, legal foundations people were working from were not those that um, the British who claimed Australia were working from. Um, I want to backtrack a tiny bit because it brings us also to another point in your book. And that was the fact that uh, Captain Cook, when he was doing his expedition and um, I guess scoping various lands out in 1770, um, had really looked at parts of Australia, including Gippsland and then up the East Coast and had decided based on, you know, his very brief uh, observations that really there weren't that many um, of native inhabitants in Australia at the time, um, that there were, you know, great features of it uh, in terms of geography that he decided to name. And uh, he also had on that voyage a, num a couple of uh, key people who we do know today, including Joseph Banks, who was um, a botanist. And you quoted an exchange uh, in a particular committee on transpo transportation in to the British Commons in May 1785, um, which was pr particularly striking and interesting. Um, the committee asked Joseph Banks about his trip with, on the endeavour with Captain Cook. And he said, in response to the committee who asked, have you any idea of the nature of the government under which they live? And Banks responded, none whatever, nor of their language. An even more pertinent question followed, do you think that 500 men being put on shore there would meet with that obstruction from the natives which might prevent them settling there? Banks replied emphatically, certainly not. From the experience I have had of the natives of another part of the same coast, I'm inclined to believe they would speedily abandon the country to the newcomers. You then go on to yeah. say yeah. when people actually did arrive on the first fleet, it was very immediate, even from the shoreline, um, that what had been reported by Banks and also by Cook to the British was not at all accurate. And I found that primary evidence that you provide of the various key people um, who, who landed there and what they discovered in terms of the diversity of nations, the diversity of language, um, the practices of, of obviously managing the land on which they were living and the fact that they were not all um, settled on the coast, that there were so many tribes inland and nations inland who had different practices, who, you know, found food that was not from the ocean, which had been an assumption, um, that there was a great deal of fire and smoke across the land, which showed that level of activity and the, the population numbers were far greater than they expected. So people very early on figured out that what they had been told was wrong. And as you say before, that the assumptions they made um, were not accurate. And it becomes more and more clear as years come on, go on uh, that there are tribes and nations that have very clear boundaries and clear territories with their own laws um, and their own languages and that you in the book really explain how that really is, um, I guess, a sovereign claim over, over certain areas um, as all these nations would have had and 
do have. Um, and I wanted to kind of, I guess, get a sense from you as to how you developed that um, and understood that from your work in the archives. Well, it, it was indeed, uh, as I point out, I, many of the many of the erroneous assumptions were overturned within a matter of months. Uh, and, you know, Philip was so astonished to see smoke in the Blue Mountains that they, they went all the way to find the fire, the remains of the fire, to see if they had been eating fish. Because if they hadn't been, then the whole, so much of the, the underlying assumptions were already proved to be wrong. Uh, they realised that wherever they went, there were new people that the Aborigines, the locals that they took with them on these expeditions, uh, were, were, you know, were, were, were entering foreign country uh, and that there were new languages, that it was a totally different world to what they'd been led to believe. Uh, the great problem, the great shame was that there wasn't then, a, you know, a, in an attempt to bring the law into line with what they saw as the reality uh, and the um, it, it was quite obvious, uh, given given that there was this mosaic of small nations, and that is what they need to be called, uh, that they had their own languages and customs. It is obvious by the linguistic evidence that the boundaries had been long-standing, uh, that people had maintained uh, their their boundaries in the within their their, their nations, and they defended their boundaries. Uh, so that th there's every reason to regard them, even in European law of the 19th century, as nations, very small, but nonetheless nations that used law. And uh, one of the great tests was, uh, was law imposed over this territory and was it obeyed? Well, what the Europeans soon discovered, that rather than not having any law, they found that the Aboriginal nations had very strict laws. That They eventually came to think uh, their laws were too strict and people, you know, were, were punished. So that uh, the, the whole understanding of the politics of Indigenous Australia had dramatically changed as people got to know more about the country they were living in. Mm. And one of the things that, um, you know, also was quite, striking around the relations between the coloniser and um, First Nations people was the fact that really you say that the character of the conflict and the rhetoric used was really around warfare um, and the fact that they were seen as, quote-unquote, enemies, um, war and various types of war language were used in documents to describe the conflict that was occurring between uh, First Nations people and the British colonisers, and also the fact that when uh, a, an Indigenous person was taken um, and taken into custody, they were really taken as a prisoner of war. They were not treated like a British subject would be. Um, they would not be tried and then um, potentially convicted and had a punishment. They were you know, taken as you would in a war with the rule of war of, of being a prisoner of war. Um, 
I guess probably without the rules around humanity or being humane to a prisoner of war that we did to some extent, in some cases have in the 20th century. So I was really interested in that discussion, particularly around the Tasmanian experience and how you were talking about um, patriotism as well on the side of the First Nations people and how they saw themselves as defending their nation and their territory. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it became the evidence is is best in Tasmania because it was a a very very uh, you know a, a very very intense conflict for about five years, but it was in a very small uh, you know a, a very small geographical area, and it was widely uh, ast- astonishingly well documented. Uh, one, because it was a small area. Two, they had numerous newspapers. But three, it was a open-air prison. So it had to be have a very, very uh, extensive uh, letter-writing bureaucracy. Otherwise, you know, you, it would have been chaotic. So when the war broke out, it was widely documented and discussed. And uh, there's no doubt that the, I mean, the governor and most of his officials were were soldiers. They were soldiers, been soldiers in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, they recognised it as war. Uh, they were the ones who began to use the term guerrilla war. Now, guerrilla war was an expression, you know, a Spanish expression, meaning a small war, and it was coined about the the Spanish peasantry, uh, you know, guerrilla war against Napoleon's troops. And so they recognised war, and uh, as a result, uh, after the first couple of, of, of uh, cases where they had people who had killed Europeans and they tried them, they increasingly did regard them as prisoners of war. Now, at the same time, there was an insurgency of bushranging, very extensive, but the bushrangers were treated as, as criminals. And if they were caught, they were chained, they were brought in, they were tried almost immediately, and they were hung. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, and their heads were cut off. Uh, and some of them, the bodies were hung up in, in, in gibbets, you know, uh, on posts. Um, but this is not the way they treated the Aborigines who were brought in. They were indeed treated as, as prisoners of war. And there was serious discussion about this. Uh, and, and it was recognised that, that this was a war. And when the war finally came to an end, and it was a war really of, of just one or two of the major nations, not, not the whole of Tasmania, um, the, uh, the governor, Governor Arthur, above all, said these are, these are you know, noble and brave people. And he was the one who said the great error that was made is that we didn't have a treaty. And he advised the British that if you if you if you proceed as you the way you did in Tasmania, there'll be endless conflict, and that you must begin with a recognition of their property and buy property from them in one way or another, and there must be a treaty. And that was the advice that he took back to England in 1836 when they were considering the settlement of New Zealand. And I have no doubt that the whole change of course in British policy, which resulted in Waitangi, uh, came as a result of the war in Tasmania. Mm. 
Yeah, and um, and there obviously were consequences, at least in that case, um, and, and a change of policy and a change in the way that um, you know relations were conducted. Um, I I wanted to just quote. Um, a piece from Arthur that you do mention because I found it interesting um, that he said this and it's what you've said but there's also an additional point. On the first occupation of the colony it was a great oversight that a treaty was not at that time made with the natives and such compensation given to the chiefs as they would have deemed a fair equivalent for what they surrendered. Um, I wanted to ask about that last part about compensation and surrendering territory. Um, do you think that that was, was or would be a realistic expectation to be making given that uh, First Nations people defended their territory so strongly and proudly um, and fiercely? Well, we don't know because it wasn't tried. Mm. Uh, but... Um, I mean, no, no nation, however small, wants to fight till, till they're all killed. I mean, at some point, and this is true all over Australia, the, the, the individual nations clearly came to the conclusion that they really had to try and come to terms. Uh, now, they often didn't have much, you know, there wasn't much option, but everywhere the fighting eventually came to an end and uh, there was an accommodation of sorts. Um, but uh, had, it been, had it been conducted by government, uh, by government officials, you know, as happened in Canada, for instance, uh, the, 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 the mounted police uh, on, for the settlement of the Western Plains of Canada at the same time as the settlement of North Australia, it was done by treaty making, and the treaties were negotiated by the by the Mounted Police. Uh, so that um, that was another way of doing it. Uh, in contrast, obviously, to Australia, and in contrast to the Americans on the Western Plains. Mm. And so you've laid out and you do lay out in even greater depth in this book um, the way that Britain had made those assumptions about Australia and the First Nations people who lived there for millennia. They made assumptions um, that had been revised even in their own writing. Um, they had since taken that advice back to Britain and, as we see, um, altered the way that dealings were made in New Zealand with the Maori people. And then, um, but then taking it back to Australia into the 19th century um, and Australia becoming self-governing colonies and then obviously a federation uh, through the constitution, you go on to say that there has been no official rejection of the way the Britain claimed sovereignty over the whole continent in 1788, 1824 and 1829 and that it remains cemented into the foundations of the Australian state. You also show how yeah. subsequent legal cases also draw on these examples in the law from the, 17th, the 18th and 19th century, and the fact that it has been, up, been upheld, I guess, by um, subsequent courts within Australia. So I wanted to also understand how when colonies became self-governing and when Australians, uh, you know, became an... A, I guess a federation. Um, 
we didn't really change course, did we? Uh, neither did the law in the way that we looked at sovereignty and looked at um, our First Nations peoples. No, that's right. We we, we just it was as you know, um, as Lionel Murphy said, it was a con- convenient falsehood. But the Australian courts say we are not able, uh, we can't question uh, the uh, the uh, the executive power which established the institutions with which we, within which we work. We can't go behind that claim of sovereignty in our courts. Now, that, uh, that presents a great difficulty. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, that in the Mabo case, uh, the, the court did, uh, to an, you know, an amazing degree, it overturned the land law that had been in place for over 200 years. And it said that um, this was not the way the common law worked in 1788, and that they didn't say it was illegal. They were very careful. They said it was wrongful wrongful to claim the, the, the Indigenous people didn't have any property rights. Uh, so they altered that, and by implication, you see, they recognised the sovereignty because they recognised that there were distinct nations. Uh, they recognised that they had property rights, and those property rights continued if they hadn't been extinguished. Um, that in effect they did exercise law over their territory and in a way were exercising sovereignty. But this, it, is still, it is still a jurisprudential mess. And that is why treaty, modern treaty making is so important. Now, modern treaty, people say, oh, you can't do that. Well, you can. And indeed, as I say, the Canadians had a history of treaty making from about 1720 up to... For 200 years, they were making treaties. And then they stopped making treaties. I think the last ones were in the 1920s. But they have started again because British Columbia and the whole North uh, had no treaties. And so what they've been doing is negotiating new treaties. So uh, this can be done. And uh, how it's done in Australia is yet to be discussed, whether it is one treaty or two Aboriginal Treaty, Torres Strait Island Treaty, or whether there's one overarching treaty and then negotiations with every small nation. I mean, it's a very complex business and we haven't even started thinking about what might be done. But Canada has showed us that you can indeed, over vast areas of Canada, you can establish a new treaty-making process. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, you know, something we've heard, you know, calls for, obviously. And, um, you know, Victoria, the Victorian government seeking to uh, make a treaty in some regard, although as you state and share, you know, it's not that simple. Um, And obviously when we had so many different uh, nations, First Nations across Australia with different uh, languages, different customs, um, you know, this is, it does make things a little bit more complex. Um, but one yes, other... Yes, it does, yes. Yeah, well, I was just going to ask one other part of that story when you were going through Eddie Marbo's court case uh, around the Murray Islands and you were saying that um, Marbo's legal team didn't seek to question the legitimacy of the annexation of the Murray Islands in 1879 and... Um, that was a, a deliberate reason. Um, there was a kind of pragmatic reason for that. Um, and as you have already mentioned, that 
Australian courts have said that we can't rule on uh, the legitimacy of the government that we've been established under. Um, so that does, as you say, leave open treaty. And it also does mean that in terms of legal recourse um, in a formal sense, that that is uh, something through, I believe, an international legal forum. Yes, I mean, if, if Australia could if it wanted to, but I'm sure I can't see it happening, um, they could ask for uh, uh, they could ask for an opinion from the International Court of Justice. Now that was done in a comparable situation in the 1970s, if I remember rightly, about the Western Sahara, and it was a conflict. Uh, whether the Spanish claim of sovereignty over the Western Sahara in 1883 or 4 or thereabouts was legitimate. And the International Court sat on it and came out, I think, you know, almost uh, with a majority, you know, not just a majority judgment, but overwhelming majority saying, no, the, the, the Spanish claim wasn't legitimate because they assumed that the... the uh, the, the people of the Western Sahara didn't exercise sovereignty. It was a terra nullius. It wasn't a terra nullius, so therefore the Spanish claim wasn't legitimate. Now, uh, you see, that it, it is, I think, once again, it is the, the Torres Strait or the Eastern Torres Strait, uh, Murray and Darnley Island, uh, where I think the first claim should indeed be made. There should be a new Murray Island case about sovereignty. It wasn't the British government. It wasn't the great imperial government. It was the Queensland government uh, that made this uh, claim of sovereignty uh, and I think utterly without legitimacy. Um, and uh, I think that should be that should be taken to court so the issues can be argued out, because if nothing else, it would be an extremely important way to educate the whole community. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Um, it is a really great section, so I hope uh, people can go to it in that chapter and read about that particular situation with the Murray Islands. Um, I just to kind of wrap up the conversation and to talk about some of the contemporary uh, issues that this brings up, um, I wanted to read out a, a, a kind of paragraph that I felt really summarised the situation that we've been discussing and then move from that. Um, you say, in terms of uh, going moving forward and, and looking at this uh, situation and where sovereignty lies uh, on either side, the only realistic alternative is the proposition that sovereignty, like land ownership, was subverted in a piecemeal fashion over a great many years. If that is the central story, it leaves wide open the alternative view that in many parts of the continent, the momentum of the invasion stalled, leaving Indigenous society still in occupation of its traditional lands and continuing to exercise its ancient sovereignty. Now, ancient sovereignty, as we heard at the start of this conversation, is something that is discussed in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And it is something yep. um, that you show and prove in this book uh, really is a very strong, has a strong case um, in terms of the law of the time, not of the law of the current period we're talking about. So in terms of the implications for that, we've discussed some of those and it would, you know, looking at treaty, for example, um, and other legal avenues. 
But what are some of the other things that if we accept the fact that in that in many cases um, Indigenous and ancient sovereignty was not ceded, that it has been maintained um, and that sovereignty, British sovereignty, um, was really piecemeal and, and was kind of obviously contested in a range of legal ways and highly questionable. What does that mean for Australia in terms of how we conduct ourselves now and how we um, confront our history, confront our past and recognise the traditional owners of the land who do have sovereignty? Yes. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is that Australia has already done this. I mean, the, 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 at the very centre of British jurisprudence is the idea that, solu uh, that sovereignty is indissoluble, this it can't be divided. Now, <laughs> that is exactly what federations do. That is, in 1901, the Constitution divided sovereign powers uh, between the Commonwealth and the states and wrote down the powers. So we, we have a great deal of experience of working in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a country, in a nation uh, that has divided sovereignty. And there seems to be no reason whatsoever that we can't uh, further develop that by establishing a right to self-government and self-determination by many of the small nations, although it may well be that uh, they will group together in uh, regions. Uh, you know, Torres Strait clearly, uh, Cape York, uh, and the the settlement in Western Australia of the Noongar people you know, that is the different the different groups of Noir over the whole of the southwest. I mean, a very large area, larger than many European countries. They have now uh, really signed what is probably the first real treaty, uh, and that is the way forward. It will be negotiated, as I say, with with uh, in regional groups. But um, as part of that is the right to self-determination within the Australian state. That is basically to make their own laws and to carry out their own internal government, as is common and always has been in the United States, you know, where the Indian nations have internal self-government and they make their own laws. Indeed. And... Um I also wanted to, before I let you go, touch on something that has been the subject of great discussion and you yourself have entered this. Uh, given your extensive research on the frontier wars, we have seen the Australian War Memorial be um, provided huge amounts of funding and that has been uh, greatly contested as to whether that was uh, relevant or important given that they could be spent in other places but historians and others are well aware that the Australian War Memorial as it is now does not um, in any meaningful way recognise the frontier wars in its um, memorialisation of Australians and uh, people who have fought wars in Australia and outside of Australia and I just wanted to get your opinion given what we've discussed given uh, your research and others research on frontier violence and the frontier wars, what are your thoughts on how Australia should think about um, remembering and confronting its past and particularly its violent past? Yes, well, the, the War Memorial, I mean, I think the War Memorial is a lost cause. Um, 
The extraordinary thing is that no one in federal parliament, you know, no one dares question the War Memorial or says, look, if you want this money, you've got to now uh, consider having a serious uh, discussion, you know, a ser serious uh, acceptance of the frontier wars. They say, oh, no, it's not our business, it's for the National Museum. Well, that's a very odd thing to say. In any way, the National Museum is so limited in space and in finance compared to the War Memorial. But I think uh, now we, we say, well, the War Memorial, I don't think they should be actually uh, trusted, even if uh, there was an instruction. I think we want a, a separate institution, uh, possibly linked to the IATSIS, the Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, Plenty of space around the uh, in Canberra, and we establish a new new, new central institution, uh, and I think that would be a very very successful and very, you know a very very popular site, and uh, they would then negotiate all over Australia how each of the small nations want their past to be remembered. Uh, so I think it needs. Uh, I think now having for a long time thought that the War Memorial should take this under their wing, I think uh, we need a, a totally new institution. And if, as I say, uh, Tony Abbott's government, led by Tony Abbott, has spent $100 million on a museum in France about the fighting on the Western Front. Now, how astonishing. Now, if you can spend $100 million on a museum that most Australians will never see, you can spend at least that much setting up a new museum in Canberra. Mm, I couldn't agree more, Henry. Um, I won't take any, mu any more of your valuable time, but I'm so grateful to you for taking us through the detail of your book. Um, there's so much more to it than what we've discussed, but you've really captured um, what is, it is about, and I think it's really been so thought-provoking for me and I'm sure many others um, who may or may not have been aware of these issues of sovereignty in the level of detail of which you have really researched and presented here. So thank you so much for your time today and uh, your wonderful advocacy but from both you and your wife. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. It's very nice to talk to someone who's both read the book and understands what it's all about. <laughs> It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And I just got Nick back. We did lose signal there. Hi, Nick. And I was saying, I'm not sure where you dropped out, but um, I was just welcoming you back onto the program. So thanks so much for coming back. Good morning, Amy. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, pretty good. Just, uh, you know, enjoying the sun as it comes out and streams through the window. Um, and I believe you're still in Melbourne at the moment. Yes, I, um, I'm based in Melbourne because of the... Uh, limits on travel around the region, um, which is, in, you know, in part annoying uh, because there's so much happening at the moment. Um, um, the COVID-19 crisis has really impacted countries and territories across the region in different ways. Um, it's having not only the health and economic impacts, but also uh, 
range of political impacts because, um, you know, as in Australia and in Europe and America, the pandemic has really revealed fault lines within societies um, um, between the, uh, the well-off and, and the poor, between workers and, uh, um, and people who, who are benefiting from the pandemic. Um, and that's playing out in the Pacific Islands just as it is uh, in our own country. Absolutely, yeah. It, certainly any crisis brings up and magnifies these political issues and sometimes political tensions and divisions, and it also can magnify inequality, as we've seen as well in terms of the haves and the have-nots. And um, certainly health being such a key equity issue is something that no doubt uh, would be felt quite acutely in the Pacific. And we did touch on that a little bit uh, last time we chatted in September last year. Um, I wanted to bring up an issue which is on the front and at the front of everyone's minds at the moment, which is the COVID-19 vaccination programs. Obviously, in the UK and in the United States, we have seen a very quick and wide rollout of vaccines over there, including Pfizer in the US uh, and also particularly AstraZeneca in the UK and, of course, Australia has just started its own rollout as of yesterday, although we did see the Prime Minister jump ahead a little bit and decide to get in on the action on Sunday. Um, one thing that has been on my mind and I'd love to hear from you about is the Pacific Islands and their access to vaccines and uh, where they might get their supply from and how that's happening and when that would be happening. Um, because we have seen the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, early on say that they had uh, deliberately bought a range of vaccines and enough that they could distribute to Pacific Island nations. Uh, Australia later on also made a similar announcement. So they're some that I'm aware of, but I'd love to hear about the overall picture of um, Pacific Islands and how they're going to get vaccinated, who is um, stepping up to provide assistance. The situation varies in different parts of the Pacific, and that's been the case right through. It's worth remembering that um, eight um, Pacific countries and territories have absolutely no cases of COVID. Um, one of the features of the response was that people rapidly closed the borders in March and April uh, last year, um, and uh, so they don't even have uh, border uh, uh, arrivals um, with, with COVID, um, and that's a really unprecedented experience across the region. Others have had a much worse experience, so French Polynesia, which is a country of about, a French territory of about 280,000 people, has had more than 18,000 cases, um, uh, more than 135 deaths, um, and so it's, it's had a much greater impact. People are looking to the, the vaccines, and in some parts of the region, they've already started rolling out. The United States has uh, provided um, some vaccines to what are called the freely associated states. These are countries like Palau, the Federated States of Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands, which have a compact of free association with the US, as well as the US territory of Guam. Um, so there is already some vaccination programs uh, begun in the Northern Pacific. The French, too, have begun to provide vaccines to their French Pacific dependencies, New Caledonia and French Polynesia. Um, it's particularly important in French Polynesia, where, as I said, they've had a, a really bad uh, um, um, surge of cases um, since they opened up borders again in July last year. 
but um, alongside Australia and New Zealand, who've pledged support, uh, uh, Scott Morrison at the recent forum uh, uh, special leaders retreat held just at the beginning of February um, pledged that Australia would provide um, access to vaccines for from the stockpile of AstraZeneca vaccine, which is to be manufactured at the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, as it used to be called, the CSL, in Melbourne. Um, but there's no timeline for that. And so some countries are looking broader than Australia and New Zealand, their traditional partners, um, and other countries, China, India and Taiwan, have all um, uh, offered support with vaccines um, under sort of South-South cooperation. Uh, so you may see countries like Papua New Guinea and Fiji uh, take up an offer, say, from China for vaccine supply before Australia starts rolling out uh, the AstraZeneca um, uh, to the islands. Um, nonetheless, uh, as I say, Australia and New Zealand have both pledged support um, most recently at the, the most recent forum meeting, um, and it's just a question of the logistics and timing of that operation and whether countries may, uh, may take up other offers that are on the table. Um, it looks like this is going to be with us for some time, so you may see a bit of mix and match um, with people using different uh, sources for the drugs. Mm. And do you think there's any sense of a felt pressure, an economic pressure, uh, or a social pressure, for example, in some of the island uh, nations and territories around tourism, um, so not just their local population being safe, but also uh, being able to have travellers come to their states or territories in a safe way and not end up bringing um, things with them by having a vaccinated population. Do you, do you sense that there are certain nations or states or um, territories who are feeling that pressure of a timeline or a need to, uh, to push ahead faster and not just wait around for whenever an AstraZeneca vaccine, for example, turns up? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, the same sort of debate that, that has been seen in some parts of Australia is being played out in the Pacific Islands. There are people, uh, particularly in the business community, who uh, want to stress the importance of uh, economic rebound um, and, uh, you know, opening up key sectors like tourism uh, um, and, and uh, other export industries that have been completely disrupted uh, by the, the collapse of international tourism um, and also impacts from uh, um, air, air transport and shipping even, um, where, you know, international airline uh, connections have been badly disrupted. And that's not just the, the arrival of tourists, but supply of, of key materials, imports of, uh, of key goods and so on has been disrupted by the global pandemic. And so there are sections of the business community, sections of government that are pushing for faster access and that's particularly in some countries where tourism has, has been a key part of the economy. Um, you know, in a number of countries around the region, tourism makes up 30 or 40% of gross domestic product. Palau, Fiji, Cook Islands, uh, Vanuatu, tourism's a, a really key sector. And beyond people employed directly in hotels, in restaurants and so on, there's all sorts of indirect employment. You know, everything from women who make handicrafts for sales to tourists, 
um, uh, people who've uh, bought a minibus um, uh, and use them to ferry tourists around or pick them up off cruise ships and so on. Um, you know, a lot of that that um, employment impact is is really biting hard, and uh, a number of people have returned to the village to grow food on their land, um, um, reliant on barter networks and so on to uh, survive the you know significant economic downturn that's hit people. Um, and I think as in Australia, people hope that uh, um, a level of vaccine uh, distribution, a level of um, um, people being vaccinated will allow for more inter-island travel initially um, between islands, then to Australia and New Zealand, and beyond that uh, to, to connect again to Northern Hemisphere countries that, that's all been disrupted over the last um, um, 16 months. Mm. And do you think that this uh, vaccine situation where we are seeing such a wide range of major powers offering their vaccines or the, so the stock and supply that they have, do you think that any of that may have a geopolitical element to it, given that we are constantly hearing about in the media contests between China and India, China and Taiwan, Australia and China. Is there any um, sense that there's also that at play or is most of this a, a kind of pragmatic um, kind of humanitarian response? Oh, no, certainly the, the geopolitics of, of, of the world are, are a key part of this. Um, and uh, um, early on, uh, there was a similar sort of push from both China and from the ANZUS allies, Australia, New Zealand, United States, around uh, basic medical supplies, uh, PPE, the personal protective equipment, um, and uh, um, key training and so on early in the, in the pandemic in March, April, May last year. Um, the Pacific uh, Forum ministers, foreign ministers, uh, met last year in April uh, to establish what they called the Pacific Humanitarian Pathway. And that pathway was designed to allow um, airlines that were providing medical supplies, PPE and so on, to transit through the region without the sort of quarantine uh, restrictions that were necessary. So a country like Tuvalu, many of its uh, flights come through Fiji. So that raises practical you know, complications for some of the more isolated island states because of the restrictions that were put at national borders. So the Pacific Humanitarian Pathway was designed as a way that the Pacific could work together um, and uh, in terms of equal sharing of these sort of resources. Ironically, with Australia and New Zealand as members of the forum being involved in setting up this pathway, the first supplies that arrived came from China. Um, there was a foundation called the Jack Ma Foundation, and that's named after Jack Ma, uh, um, who's sort of the Bill Gates of China. He's a, a billionaire who's made his money out of tech companies like Alibaba and, uh, and other uh, tech, tech and uh, uh, internet companies. Um, now in disgrace at the moment, but that's not part of the story. Um, he's, um, his foundation, you know, as with the Gates Foundation, was very early involved in health and research uh, supplies to developing countries. And the first supplies that came through this humanitarian pathway came from China, not from Australia and New Zealand. Um, Australia and New Zealand, the United States, have increasingly used their military forces and defence forces for the transport and logistics involved in this. Uh, and so, you know, there's a whole debate about civil-military cooperation in the, the rollout of the response to the pandemic. Uh, you know, it's quite a complex picture, 
And I think you're right, there is some geopolitics, particularly overlain by the US-China strategic competition in the region. And, um, you know, Australia, Japan, France lining up with the Americans, obviously, to contain China. Mm. Um, that's a really interesting, Matt. And um, on a kind of interesting side note to that um, in terms of geopolitics and another issue that seems to potentially have affected uh, a number of Pacific Island countries, and that was when Facebook uh, blocked Australian news sites and also the sharing of Australian news links um, because, you know, I was interested to read in the ABC recently that, um, for example, uh, a, p- a particular telco, Digicel, offered affordable mobile data plans which were offering cheap or free access to Facebook and that that was one way that um, some Pacific Islanders sought to get their news was, and particularly ABC, uh, the Radio Australia content was through Facebook. Um, what are your thoughts on that situation and whether the effect would be um, either mild, moderate or significant in terms of people's access to this news content through their digital plans? Oh, it's it's really fundamental. Um, I've just written a paper actually about social media in New Caledonia around the referendums, uh, as we talked on the program before, about uh, New Caledonia holding political referendums on their uh, status and uh, self-determination. Um, you know, the, the data that's provided is fascinating. 96% of people who rely on uh, um, internet services uh, use Facebook. Um, and so in New Caledonia, with French territory just off the coast of Queensland, um, the, the Facebook use is incredibly high. And compared to that, only 7% of people use Twitter um, and smaller numbers, either for Instagram um, and so on. This is just one territory. It varies, of course, across the region. But Facebook is really widely used and very popular, um, not just for sharing news, but for gossip, for you know, political argument, uh, for all sorts of things. And so um, many people have been reliant on Australian sources uh, um, in English uh, for uh, news and um, key news sources, as you say, like Radio Australia, um, Radio New Zealand, uh, Pacific Service and so on, have been affected by uh, this sort of uh, uh, steps by the, the, the corporation to cut news feeds. Um, you know, it, it reverberates around the region. And access to timely, accurate um, and in many cases non-partisan information is really crucial. Um, as a journalist working in the Pacific, um, sometimes people have looked to Radio Australia or Radio New Zealand to break stories that are culturally or politically too sensitive to break um, in, you know, the local media. Um, but once it's on Radio Australia, it allows people to do follow-up questioning. So I've had, you know, fellow journalists in the Pacific sometimes feed me a story that they find it too difficult to ask about. Um, but once it's been broadcast from Australia and New Zealand, um, it allows the local journalists to uh, to approach people for comment, for reaction and so on. So, you know, the media landscape is changing. There's new media coming into the region, including from China, from uh, the United States and other sources. But Australia and New Zealand broadcasting is really crucial for regional and international coverage that a local news service like Tonga Broadcasting or Kiribati Broadcasting just doesn't have the resources to follow up. Mm. Um, Yeah, obviously there are 
consequences for Australia's uh, political actions that do reverberate, as you've said, and uh, perhaps are not something that has been or should have been foreseen but has not been foreseen or at least accounted um, or, you know, prioritised. So, uh, yeah, I hope that um, things do change at least so that we can make sure that people who need this information can actually get it and, as you say, from a, a non-partisan source. And it's really interesting to hear your first-hand account of the journalists and how things happen over there and the political sensitivities that are um, very much apparent in each uh, state and territory. Um, one other area you just mentioned there, New Caledonia, that was something that we were discussing, as you said, uh, in September last year. That was because there was a second referendum on independence in New Caledonia, which wasn't successful for the pro-independence side, but uh, the gap did close uh, and there was some movement within the community on this. Um, what was interesting to see in the headlines just recently was the fact that there's now a, a dominant pro-independence government in New Caledonia, the first since 1999. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the significance of that uh, in the development of this story around independence and seeking independence from France, which uh, is still obviously, you know, um, in charge. As you mentioned, last October there was a referendum um, about political status. Uh, although a majority of New Caledonians voted to stay within the French Republic, the final result was 53% to stay with France, 47% to uh, become an independent and sovereign nation. And that's um, an increase on the previous referendum held in 2018. Under the framework agreement known as the Numir Accord that governs uh, political status in New Caledonia, a third referendum can be held in the next couple of years. And it's likely in April that New Caledonia's local legislature, the Congress, will um, vote to hold a third referendum. What's significant, too, is the change of government. Under the Namir Accord, which is this agreement between the French state, supporters and opponents of independence, New Caledonia has a, a, a local government. It's a multi-party government. So rather than one party you know, winning the elections and dominating, it includes representatives from all the major political parties not all, um, that are represented in the, the local Congress. And so since the, this agreement came into force more than 20 years ago, you've had governments um, chosen by the Congress that include both supporters and opponents of independence from different parties. Um, historically, though, it's meant that the anti-independence forces have held a majority in each of those governments since the first came in. The system came in in 1999. Um, what's just happened uh, over the last uh, ten days has been the election of an independence majority. Um, previous government under uh, then President Thierry Santé elected in 2019, the anti-independence parties had six seats in the government, the pro-independence forces five. And so with that six-seat majority, um, President Santo was elected, and he's a conservative um, French loyalist, as they say, uh, who believes that New Caledonia should remain with France. The most recent vote in Congress um, came after five the five independence members of the government resigned. It brought down the government and essentially a vote of no confidence. And in the new election, 
um, because of significant changes uh, in the Congress, they gained a majority. So it's now 6-5 in favour of independence. Um, there's a dispute amongst the independence groups as to who will be the president, but we're going to see the first Indigenous Kanak leader of a government of New Caledonia in more than 40 years. It was back in 1982 to 84 that the Jean-Marie Chabau was effectively the leader of, of the government, territorial government at that time. Uh, this is a major breakthrough and reflects the, the fallout from the referendum last October um, where it's clear that there's growing sentiment for independence. There's another vote to come within the next year or so. And um, the the change in the government has, has really thrown a hand grenade into, into public opinion um, in New Caledonia because I think for many people of European heritage, they'll be quite shocked uh, to see the independence movement take a, a leading role in the government. Mm. It's nine minutes to 12 and I'm talking with Nick McClellan about Pacific affairs and Pacific politics. Um, just finally on the New Caledonia situation, do you think that the change in government and the change in the power balance within government has propelled or pushed forward a, a third referendum or was that referendum always going to come about? No, it, it's up to the Congress to decide on whether the referendum should be held. Um, originally, going back uh, um, to this agreement, the Namir Accord, three-fifths of the Congress could set the date for the first referendum. And that was um, the idea of having to get three-fifths was that basically in an evenly divided uh, um, political situation, both supporters and opponents of independence would have to come together to set the date, and that eventually happened for the 2018 vote. Now, however, a third of the Congress can vote for another referendum, and given the independence movement makes up you know, nearly half the, the Congress, um, it's clear that there will be another referendum. Um, it's just a question of a, a time delay. They can't hold the vote um, until April this year. I think the 5th of April is the first date that the Congress can meet to set the date for another vote. Mm -hmm. That's going to happen. The timing is a bit complex because in 2022, France goes to its presidential elections. Uh, Emmanuel Macron will come to the end of his uh, term of office and uh, uh, will presumably be running again um, against uh, Marine Le Pen of the Rassemblement National and also probably other contenders from uh, um, his own uh, his own movement. Um, so 2022 is going to be a complex year to hold an independence referendum in the middle of a quite highly politicised time within France. Um, the very fact of having a majority independence government um, and fairly soon the election of a, a pro-independence president changes the dynamic enormously because you'll have... Um, a, a Kanak leader negotiating directly with the French state about the process of the, the next referendum. And that really changes the game in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, a, a majority independence government will, um, you know, have enormous impacts in developing a budget, which will prioritise, uh, you know, housing, social benefits, health, education for working class people, for the indigenous population, for other poor islanders from uh, other communities. So it's it's a, a significant 
change and frankly one that's been largely ignored by the Australian media despite New Caledonia being one of Australia's closest neighbours. Mm. Yes, I only saw it on SBS uh, online news, so it hasn't really made the headlines in any great way, but it is such a momentous occasion given the fact that, as you said, a Kanaka leader will actually be president of New Caledonia for the first time in a very, very long time. So that is a massive achievement and um, hopefully it will propel forward uh, independence in New Caledonia. Um, but, uh, yeah, it sounds like it will be a very tumultuous 2022. Um, certainly French politics by itself is usually tumultuous, so it will be very uh, interesting to see how things play out. Um as a final topic of discussion, I wanted to touch on the Pacific Islands Forum is a very significant forum, and I know that you have attended uh, the forums for a number of years as well, um, so I'm sure you're no doubt really aware of the political goings-on and um, how things usually travel politically between areas, um, but it has been noted and, you know, really a substantial development has been noted that the there has been a decision by the Micronesian states to withdraw from the Pacific Islands Forum, um, which really is a break from this long history of Pacific regionalism. And uh, I was really interested to try and understand uh, why the the uh, sorry why the Micronesian states decided to do such a thing and um, what really propelled this decision. One of the central elements of the annual forum meeting is a leaders' retreat where the 18 member countries and territories, Australia, New Zealand, uh, two French dependencies and, and 14 independent countries, the leaders, presidents, prime ministers sit together in the room and talk frankly about politics. Um, last year, for the first time in a long, long, long time, they hadn't been able to hold that meeting because of the COVID restrictions and travel restrictions. And um, uh, the, the meeting will be held, uh, the next meeting will be held later this year, um, probably in Fiji. Um, there was urgent business, however, one around the response to the COVID pandemic and two, the appointment of a new Secretary General to run the Forum Secretariat in Suva. Um, Dame Meg Taylor, the current Secretary General, is just ending her second term in office and um, had to, to, to finish up. There was, as you say, though, contention about the replacement. Five Micronesian countries came together a couple of years ago in 2019 to nominate Marshallese diplomat um, Gerald Zakios, who's currently ambassador of the United States, as their candidate, joint candidate, for the position of Secretary General. The Micronesians felt um, and feel that it's their turn. Um, the last time someone from this sub-region of the Pacific, in the northern Pacific, um, held the position was in between 1992 and 98. Um, so more than 20 years ago, um, Jeremiah Tabai of Kiribati was Secretary General. Since then, you've had a succession of people from Australia and from uh, the other larger subgroupings of Melanesia and Polynesia, and the Micronesians feel it's their turn. Uh, they were, were, were had the candidates ready to go in 2004 when Australia took the job, um, they had another candidate uh, who nominated late in 2014 when Dame Meg Taylor was appointed. Um, and so there's, a, frankly, anger and disappointment that their candidate was not chosen this time. Um, there was a special leaders' retreat early in February, um, and uh, out of five candidates, uh, 
Henry Puna, the former Cook Islands uh, Prime Minister, got the job. Um, there's a lot of angler um, amongst the Micronesian leaders, and they've announced that they're withdrawing from the, the forum. I think that um, takes a year to happen, technically, legally, so there'll be a lot of discussion in coming months about trying to rebuild this link um, uh, in what's a crucial regional organisation. Mm. Well, it is, um, you know, obviously a reason to be angry. Uh, I can absolutely understand that situation. Um, in terms of the associated states uh, in Micronesian, in the Micronesian uh, region or sub-region, um, is it the case that it's uh, made up of Palau, the Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia? The, no, there's, it's more complex. There's a, uh, there are sub-regional organisations. Melanesia has one called the Melanesian Spearhead Group. There's a Polynesian Leaders Group. And what we've seen is the growth of a, a structure called the Micronesian Presidents Summit that includes the two um, Anglophone uh, Micronesian countries, Nauru and Kiribati, that both look to the South Pacific, as well as the three um, uh, compact states, Marshalls, FSM, Palau in the Northern Pacific, and also US territories, the US territory of Guam and the Commonwealth of Northern Marianas, which are not independent countries. So the Micronesian bloc is much more recent than the MSG, which began back in the 80s, um, and the Polynesian Leaders Group, which has been around for, for quite a while. And the Micronesians, although it's a, a much newer grouping, a sub-regional grouping, has come together very strongly. And they've been raising issues that particularly offend them as, as small land areas, but large ocean states um, around fishing, around cleaning up nuclear contaminants in Kiribati and, and the Marshall Islands, around transport and shipping issues. So they've got a whole agenda they come together through this Micronesian President's Summit and they've walked out of the forum together to send a signal to the other larger countries, not only Australia and New Zealand, but Fiji, Papua New Guinea, that they want to have a say in the way the regional response um, happens around everything from COVID response to climate change to relations with China and Taiwan. Um, the Micronesian countries are flexing their muscle and saying, we've got something to contribute even though our populations are pretty small compared to bigger countries like Fiji and Papua New Guinea. Mm, it sounds like substantial. They are a substantial political block then, and uh, you know that this this walking out has significant consequences and gravity, and um, and hopefully there is some development that uh, does see them return in some way, but also make sure that their voice is appropriately heard. Because as you say, you know, issues like climate change, they are really at the front line and their voice uh, should be heard strongly and loudly and that they, um, you know, are really much, very much should be at the the decision-making table on these issues. And, um, yeah, I'm so grateful to you for explaining the significance of these issues for those of us who aren't across it and uh, haven't had the great pleasure of getting to know um, these individual nations and territories. So thanks so much, Nick, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Amy. Look forward to talking again. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.